begun studying Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most unique and intriguing books in the Bible. King Solomon is reflecting on some of his backsliding years, and he's going to try to convince you to live with an eternal perspective by proving to you how meaningless life is without God at the center. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we're reminded to look to Jesus for our joy and purpose in life. It is time for more fun under the sun with King Solomon and Ecclesiastes. We're going to pick up where we left off in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. All right. Uh, I'm going to tell you ahead of time that by chapter 6, we will have finished uh, the first half of Ecclesiastes. The book divides quite nicely into two halves. And tonight, uh, we'll finish uh, the first half. The second half, I'm happy to tell you, is a little bit more upbeat. So (laughs) not much but a little bit. (laughs) Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge, first of all, that you are here. Jesus, you told us, or two or three gathered together in your name, you're there in the midst. And so we recognize that awesome reality and acknowledge your presence here. And Lord, thank you that you don't want to play games with us. Uh, you, you're serious, you mean business with tonight, you want to change our lives, you, you want to lighten our burdens, and, and that can't happen unless we're listening with all of our hearts, assisted by the Holy Spirit. So we ask for that help tonight in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I believe that Eeyore, that wonderful Winnie the Pooh, pessimistic donkey friend, that lives on Pooh Corner there, uh, Eeyore and King Solomon have something in common, don't they? Um, You remember Eeyore, I'll show you a picture, you know. Remember him? Could be worse, not sure how, just give it some time. You know, uh, and that's how he talks too, you know, he, just this gloomy outlook, you know, fatalistic um, perspective and attitude. He's the one who says, it's no good. It's never going to work. We're all going to (laughs) die. Well, does it sound familiar, the book of Ecclesiastes? It should, because pretty much this is what King Solomon, who has wandered from the path of life, he's very distant from God right now. That's what he sounds like. He is saying meaningless, meaningless, uh, full of just empty vanity. That's such as life. What's the point? Life is broken. It can't be fixed. We're all going to die. That's exactly what King Solomon is saying. Now, they both suffer with a condition called anhedonia. Now, let me define that for you. Anadoniacs, 
uh, have the inability to experience pleasure from activities usually found enjoyable, festive social gatherings, impressive accomplishments, increasing wealth, nothing does it for them. Uh, but these two, King Solomon and Eeyore, they don't have a mental disorder. Uh, they have an appropriate response. So let's take Milne's uh, character first uh, from Pooh Corner. Uh, he is in his right mind, and he has a right to be depressed, and people who are depressed for all the right reasons are not crazy. They're just in despair. Um, he, he doesn't need to see an animal psychiatrist, uh, Eeyore. Eeyore doesn't need meds. He's come to the sad realization that he's not real, that he's going to end up in a recycle bin, the bottom of some trash barrel with the rest of his empty pretenders, friends. Um, and he's taken a look inside. And you know what he's found? Just fluff, nothing. There's nothing there. There's nothing but a bunch of batting, straw, beans, and cotton fluff. So he's come to this conclusion. I'm empty. I'm not even real. What's the point? We're all going to die. <laughs> King Solomon has looked inside his own heart. What does he see? He, says, he sees flesh and blood batting, a bunch of hot air, bunch of lust, a bunch of greed, a bunch of lostness. Right now, he has no God and no Savior. He believes there's a God. He's very distant right now. He's fallen away. Let me show you what happened to this guy who wrote Proverbs, the smartest guy on the planet. Here's what he did. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign wives, reading from 2 Kings chapter 11. Besides the Shulamite, Pharaoh's daughter, this first wife, the Song of Solomon uh, wife. On top of that wife, he had married Moabites. These are enemies of Israel. Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told him and the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they'll surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 of these wives of no of royal birth. I already told you that's 19,000 pairs of shoes, right? <laughs> 300 concubines, just in case the 700 weren't enough, and his wives led him astray. God is not mocked. When he tells you, you know, if you do this, this is going to happen, guess what? This is going to happen. So as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. See, so, so he's not fully devoted. He, he still has saving faith, but he's completely compromised. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And let, let, let me just tell you, when, when, thank you for that scripture. When you wander from the truth, in comes deception. 
doubts and confusion. You, you fly upside down. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to be distant from the Lord. And so, you know, he looks inside his heart and he looks at the world and he sees the corruption and how life is crazy and nothing makes sense and nothing does without the Bible and without God and without having a Savior. No wonder he's uh, frustrated and depressed. So life, his conclusion is life with, without an eternal perspective is no fun indeed. It's like chasing the wind. And so chapters one through six, and we're in the middle of five, is uh, logging a journal of his investigation. He said, listen, uh, let me spare you the trouble. I'm going to investigate. Is there any way under the sun on this planet to find purpose, meaning, joy, contentment, without God, and he's going to come up empty. And it's as if Ecclesiastes, God anoints his backsliddenness and his worldview that, that's, that's apart from uh, devotion to Christ, and God anoints that and says, let, let, learn from this. Ecclesiastes is really uh, an argument against unbelief and falling away. Uh, because you don't want to be as miserable as Solomon is. So the truth that Ecclesiastes means the preacher, a Latin term for the Hebrew word, uh, Ecclesiastes, the truth that he's preaching is if you don't have God, you don't know your creator, if you don't know the person who made you, how will you ever know what you're supposed to be doing? How could you ever know? So he says, there's no hope. You're just going to the grave with a lot of questions and a lot of frustration. Everything is meaningless. So there's no joy in laughter. There's no point in a disciplined life. There's no point in being wise. There's no, part, no point in, in watching your weight or watching your speech or, or trying really hard. If, if you know, tomorrow we're going to die and that's the end of it. You know, so, you, you know, I've been telling you Ecclesiastes is descriptive it's not prescriptive. So uh, when he says meaningless, meaningless, nothing makes sense, uh, God's not telling his people everything's meaningless. It's a description of a life that's lost its way with God, right? And so just remember that because the gospel says, oh, there's optimism, joy, purpose, meaning, uh, contentment, eternal life, all for the asking. It's in the gift of Christ, and it's what God wants for us. So Solomon is not mentally ill. Um, you know what? You know who is mentally ill? The people who are deranged are the people who don't have God, don't have a, a creator, don't know why they're here, don't know where they're going, and with the threat of going off the cliff in eternal separation from God, and they're partying and happy and saying, I have peace and everything's okay. That's derangement. That is derangement. Solomon should be depressed because he's lost his way. But you should not be happy, sir, if you're drifting on the Niagara River. No, 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 no. You can just say, I have peace. I'm happy. I'm so content. 
right? That's derangement. And the Bible calls that deception. So, so here we go. Um, let's dive back in on chapter five. I think you've got the feeling for the first five chapters. <laughs> You're like, yeah, we do. I saw a lot of faces saying, yes, we get it now. Please move on. Uh, the, and, and so we're diving into uh, and picking up at verse eight and let this prodigal preacher list some more of the things that just drive him crazy. Just say, this doesn't make sense. And it, uh, it just makes life um, such a despairing uh, thing to have to live. So uh, verse 8. Now, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. This is your life. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others uh, higher still. I'll explain that. The, the increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. And so, do you remember Sesame Street? When, I, when we were watching the, uh, with the kids, you know, a long time ago now, uh, they used to say, this program is brought to you by the letter, you know. Well, this sermon is brought to you by the letter C, because all the points are going to begin with C. All right? And this first C is going to be corruption. So corruption, it's a familiar refrain for Solomon, and it really gets his goat going, man. And, and uh, he's saying, is there any hope that the government might be able to solve some of our problems. <laughs> no. <laughs> he says, and don't be surprised that government is an abject failure. Um, I like what Ronald Reagan said. Whom I really admired him, and I have a feeling we are going to see him in heaven. He professed to know Christ as his personal savior. He said this, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. <laughs> you remember that quote, right? It's pretty famous. Well, uh, Solomon is going to say much the same here, and he's going to include his own administration. He's going to indict himself here. Now, he's saying, given the condition of man's heart, the human heart, Instead of serving, government officials use their authority to help serve their own interest. And so, of course, this is exactly opposite from what God wants, right? He installs government to watch out, to uphold the rights of the poor, to establish justice, uh, not to deny justice to the poor, the fatherless, the foreigner, the widow, uh, this is God's heart. You know, he's told you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And so one translation has this saying, justice for the poor and the oppressed gets lost in red tape and bureaucracy and politicians' egos and something that I can't read because it's so small. <laughs> and selfish ambition. <laughs> it gets lost in all of that. Now, here's what Solomon's bemoaning. He's bemoaning this. Instead, uh, instead of helping government 
officials are looking out for number one. That's the eyeing of each other, climbing the corporate ladder. So he says, don't be so surprised if the name of the game in Washington, D.C., and and every center of legislation is a lust for personal power at the expense of the welfare of the citizens. Why are you so surprised? He says, don't be so surprised. The answer isn't in government. That's what he's saying. That's what the Bible's saying. Solomon's saying it. And he's part of the government. (laughs) You know, that's interesting. So he says um, in verse 9, verse 9 gives commentators fits. And so I think Warren Wiersbe uh, nailed it. And he said, this is what it means. In spite of corruption in in the bureaucracy, it is better to have a government, some sort of organized government and a king over the land uh, than to have anarchy, right? So, it, you know, it's a broken system, but it's better than no system, is a little ray of sunshine there, uh, courtesy of King Solomon, verse 9. Moving on, 10 through 12. Now he's going to get to the bottom of this. Why, is it, why are they so corrupt? Oh, okay, so go to the root of the matter. Whoever loves money (laughs) never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit is all that stuff to the owner except to feast his eyes on all that stuff? Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. So uh, the second word, coveting. Solomon's mind now goes to the root of the problem of the corruption is that the heart of the politicians are, have a continual lust and greed uh, problem. I like the proverb that says, from evil doers come evil deeds. And so the fact that they're, they're corrupt just points to the fact that they're evildoers and have evil hearts. And that's hard. Uh, you know when somebody gets caught doing something terrible, what do they always say? They always say, I always read this. They say, oh, that's not who I am. Yes, it is. It's exactly who you are. That's why you did it. That's who you are. That's a statement of who you are. It may not be who you want to be, who you wish you weren't but it is who you are because you did it right and so these the corrupt politicians he's saying uh, they love money they love power they 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 love um pride and all of this stuff and that's the problem the struggle for power comes from an insatiable desire for more and more money so here's the crazy thing in verse 10 He says, now here's this broken drive that says more, more, more. Feed the meter, feed the meter, feed the meter. You feed the meter, and you're doing quite well, but the meter's broken, and the meter keeps saying more, 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 and it's like I just gave you more. I gave you more than everybody else has, and the meter's going more, more, more. It's still possible. You could still have more. It's still a possibility and a desire for something a little bit more. You know the crazy quote that says, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. 
just a little bit more. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a livable wage with some breathing room, right? But here's the problem. I got it. Uh, Paul speaking to Timothy here. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing in. We're going to take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, Christians, we should be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It didn't say money is the root. Money's not the problem. A lot of wonderful, godly people have a lot of money. It's the love of the money at the expense of God that you'll find the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so the thing that drives us to want more has no off button. So if there's no off button, this is why he's despairing. If the problem is caused by a broken drive that never has enough, then the problem of corruption can never be ended. It can never be solved because the problem of the inner perpetual driving for more uh, is not fixable, right? And so he says, does that make sense? I love when he says, this is meaningless. So his conclusion there in verse 11, he says, so you pile up goods, and he says, just so you can look at all the stuff. It gets in the way in the garage and in the back room. You've got stuff for your stuff, you know. He says, and, and uh, it can't save you. It can't give you what you're looking for, you know. It's fun a little bit here and there. That's why we do it. But he says, uh, it's just feasting your eyes. And then he says, I like this. In 11b, it says, as you pile up your goods, so, do, so also piles up friends who want to consume them with you. That's what that verse is saying. So one writer said, one's popularity increases commensurate with the increase of your paycheck. Your popularity goes up the more money you have, the more power you have, the bigger your house, the nicer your boat, the summer cottage, suddenly, you know, as Proverbs says, everybody loves generous people who give gifts, right? And so there's this ongoing thing. And then he ends up saying, and the ironic thing of all is the, the rich guy who's coveting all the time, he can't sleep at night because he's worried and anxious about maintaining and growing all his investments and all of that. And ironically, the dude, the blue-collar dude who digs ditches for minimal wage, he's sound asleep enjoying a good night's rest while you're up with heartburn, indigestion, and working on an ulcer, checking the markets <laughs> on your iPhone. And then he says, wait, that's not all. Verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil <laughs> under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb 
and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness and great frustration, affliction, and anger. All right, let's talk about this. Verses 13 through 17. Another word that begins with C, calamity comes calling. Calamity is an equal opportunity employer, as it were. You know, it doesn't matter, as he said, if you're wise or foolish, if you're young or old, you're rich or poor, calamity just seems to come. And for somebody without God and without Romans 8.28, knowing that as we love God, he's working all things, our calamities as well, for our good. If you don't have Romans 8.28 or a savior who can redeem and is using calamity, well then calamity for the sake of calamity just makes you very, very nervous, afraid, and depressed because there's nothing you could do about it. So he's talking here in verse 13. He says, uh, Solomon proposes, so let's say this man does accumulate wealth And then he says, even at the cost of warping his own character to his own harm. Okay, so he plays the game on the the earth, in the world scene, and he does the rat race thing. And uh, he suffers doing it, but he plays the game. And And he gets all the money, and he's got the stuff. And then there's an unfortunate turn of events, like an economic downturn, or a drought, or famine, or a natural disaster, or fire, just sweeps in and it's all gone. Uh, embezzlement, theft, or whatever. So he's worked his whole life, um, but because of this unforeseen uh, misfortune, he can't enjoy it. What happened? His wealth sprouted wings, and it took off and flew away like an eagle, right? Now, uh, and he doesn't even have heirs to benefit from this. Now, th- this, this really shows Solomon. He, he measured success by the wrong standard, and when he, when he went bankrupt, he died a failure, poor, frustrated, bitter, and angry with nothing. So, so uh, you know, nothing wrong with IRAs or savings. In fact, Proverbs says, a wise man leaves something for his children, right? Uh, he also says, uh, wise man saves for the future. That's biblical, right? But he, Jesus says, you know what? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, right? Uh, make your life about serving God. Put the kingdom of God first. And, and, and you're accruing and you're investing in eternal reward, and he says, there's no misfortune in heaven that's going to take away uh, that wealth. And so he says, uh, listen, your account in heaven will be safe from misfortune. For where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. Now, so it just says, you know, life without God doesn't make sense. 
because you're so vulnerable to misfortune. And when misfortune comes and you don't have God and you saved up and you had all these plans and your heirs were just right there needing the money and then it's all wiped out. He says, it's meaningless. I don't get it. Man, what a terrible way to live. To just to have that wheel turning, the wheel of fortune, and then, you know, you lose it all. I know a lot of people who, who go into retirement and they get sick immediately and they can't enjoy anything. It just happens like that. And Solomon says, that just drives me crazy. Well, Solomon, there's an answer to all the frustration that's driving you crazy. It's called the gospel. It's called the gospel. And, and so now Solomon is needing a break. He is even becoming a little uh, desperate for something positive. And so lo and behold, it's time for a moment of sunshine from King Solomon. So please note that whenever there's a ray of sunshine in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's because God's name is mentioned every single time. Let's see the clouds part for just a moment. Then I realized, I had an epiphany, an aha moment. It's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. Uh, uh, we can't be too positive. During the few days of life, God has given him. For this is his lot. All right. Now, we've, we've heard this a lot. Verse 19, moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and to be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. And so here comes some counsel. It's pretty good counsel. It's not full counsel. We're going to talk about that. Some counsel at least to dull the pain, all right, of a miserable life without an eternal uh, perspective. Uh, so from all this negative gear grinding that's going on in his brain and the black smoke, suddenly he has an aha moment. But it's the same thing he's been saying. This is the best Solomon can come up with. If you don't have God and there's no heaven and no hell, the best thing you could do is just enjoy the simple pleasures in life. Now, we've heard him say this in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, chapters 3, uh, verses 12 through 14, chapter 3, verse 22, and it's coming again in chapter 8, verse 15, and in chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Enjoy the little pleasures in life. So here's what he's saying. This is the best that he can offer you in God's kingdom. Well, it's not God's kingdom. That's the deal. He used to be. He used to be very wise man. Can you imagine a very wise man telling you, here's the best thing you can hope for. Enjoy a good meal, table fellowship, your glass of wine with your spaghetti, and, 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 and enjoy a job well done. That's it. That's all you can do. Wow, Solomon, man. Now notice he observes some people get lucky and God enables them. And the only reason I could use the word lucky in Ecclesiastes is because he's apart from God right now. So he's just thinking, I don't know, I've seen people out there 
I've gone on Facebook. I've seen their pages. They seem very happy. They take little road trips. Uh, they, or they get together with their families, and they go off to college, and all their selfies. They look so happy. I've seen it. So I know God enables some people out there, and he's saying, not me. Not me. But I've seen some people happy. They're having their dinner on the rooftop, and there's a little music, and the little kids are dancing around. He says, that's nice. If God enables you to do that, man, more power to you. That's what he's saying. That's the best he can offer, is saying, just enjoy that. And sadly, you know, a man of diminished faith will offer diminished counsel of a diminished life. Life comes down to enjoying little pleasures. You could put that on Pinterest. The people of the world think that. What does the gospel say? Oh, the gospel says, you seek the kingdom of God first. Oh, everything you need to enjoy in this life will be given. You will be given more than you can contain. You will have the eternal God as your best friend, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, a friend who will never leave you or forsake you, a God who will answer your prayers and listen to you and comfort you, guide you, give you wisdom. Listen to this, joy unspeakable and full of glory, 1 Peter 1.8. A peace that passes understanding, Philippians 4, verse 7. Jesus says, in the world you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've given you peace, and nobody can take that peace from you. John chapter 14. A love that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. A God who will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. Yeah, that's the gospel. That's the New Testament. A life that Jesus said, I've come to give you life that overflows, abundant life. The New Testament calls it life that's really life. A lot more than a spaghetti dinner with a glass of wine and going to work and just saying, I love my job. Uh, I, I know. Trust me, there's more. There's more than just that. He, but you know what? If you're an unbeliever, and there's no heaven and hell to you. Olive Garden tonight. Get your <laughs> spaghetti dinner. Invite some friends. And I hope you enjoy it. Wow. Does life make sense? Life doesn't make sense. That's this whole point of 12 chapters. Does it make sense to have no God, no Savior, no redemption, no hope, no eternity? Eternity's in our hearts. Nothing makes sense in this whole life if you take away the word of God and a savior and God the Father. You just you don't have anything. Now, chapter six just says 12 quick little verses. And I know how you are. You want to go for it. So here we are. <laughs> just one and two. They go fast. He's not done complaining. Hold on. Chapter 6, verse 1. I've seen another evil under the sun. Oh, another one. And it weighs heavily on everybody. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God doesn't enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. 
let's talk about this contradiction C. All right, contradiction. On the contrary. So here's what he was saying. Yes, you may enjoy your, your dinners and your table fellowship, your glass of wine, and your accomplishments at work, right? But, you know, not everybody gets that. He just has to be a downer and has to say, you know, you may get lucky, you may not. And so let's talk about the may nots. So he does. So he says, on the contrary, some people have it all, money, material blessing, power, influence, a little bit of fame, but for some reason, they lack the ability to enjoy it like me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, let's talk about the people who have it all and they're miserable, like moi, right? That's what he's saying. Take me, for example. And then he lays the blame where? As all backsliders do. Fully on the shoulders of God Almighty. What kind of sadist would God have to be to say, hey, I'm going to bless you, bless you, bless you, give you the desires of your heart, and then, whoops, you can't enjoy it, right? Does that sound like God? No, it sounds like a backslider who has a warped view of how God is. And so here's what he's saying. Listen, if God blesses anybody with anything, he fully intends the recipient to enjoy all the blessings the way that God intended them to be enjoyed. Failure to enjoy any blessing that God gives you would, would come under the label of user error. Amen? <laughs> if there's ever a problem between you and God, guess who's at fault? <laughs> I don't, I'm just saying, I just think it might be us. All right, so he says... Maybe it's, <laughs> I'm thinking, maybe it's true that if a person wants to spend the blessing on themselves and the blessing becomes an entanglement to life and the blessing that God gives you <laughs> gets in the way of your love for him and the blessing becomes like a, a, a millstone about your neck, well, yeah, then of course, Solomon, he's not going to let you enjoy your palace, your palatial estate, and the wine women in the song, and all of that. He's not going to uh, let you enjoy the gardens. Why aren't I happy out in the garden? Why, why don't I, I made a zoo? Why isn't the zoo making me happy? I'm the richest guy in the whole world. Why isn't the money making me happy? And he's blaming God. He's saying, because God isn't letting me enjoy it. You know, he's not letting you enjoy it because he loves you and he wants to woo you back, Solomon. Of course. A God who loves us, who wants to draw us back from our idolatries, where we take his blessings and bow down to the blessing and make it all about the stuff, that he says, hey, listen, let me dry up that relationship so that in hopes that you'll start looking to me now instead of the women, instead of the, the gardens, instead of the money, instead of the acclaim. So of course, it's not God's fault. He's not being a big meanie. A big meanie would just say, there you go. <laughs> Have it. Have your idols. 
but not God. So in a sense, in a sense, so watch out for gifts that get turned inward, misused, that ruin your walk with God because God in love will indeed help hinder your enjoyment of that which now is a hindrance to you. Um, Let's continue on. And by the way, it's not a grievous evil what God's doing. It's a generous mercy. Just saying. Three to six. A man may have a hundred children. This is a big deal to Jews. The more children, the more arrows in your quiver, the more honored, okay? A a guy can have a hundred children and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity like I can't (laughs) and doesn't receive a proper burial like maybe I won't, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Jews never named a baby that was born to mitigate the grief. So they never gave their stillborn children names, and so you see it here. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. (laughs) Even if he lives a thousand years twice, 2,000 years, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. All right, this C is called crisis. He's having a crisis here. He's not suicidal, but he does fantasize about never having been born. He's saying, listen, I think he's hit rock bottom here. Um, And he's just saying, a life that I've been describing that has misfortune, that has been living a lie and saving up and wanting to enjoy life. And then, then, and then it's all wiped out and, and all of this. He says, you know, listen, sometimes I wonder, you know, why am I even here, you know? Now, he says, many child, even if, I am, if somebody has many children, let's say 100 children, he says, so even with 100 children and 100 million Misfortune can come, family chaos, and you can't enjoy the money or the children. And then he says, death comes. Now, now this thing about a proper burial, very interesting. He says, you cannot even control your own funeral. Who knows what they have planned for you? And, and, and who knows if they have anything planned for you? Because uh, with 100 children... Okay, and and there could be a lot of stuff going on. And he knows in his own household, you know, what's going to happen? You know, listen, and he says, you know, that's the final insult. That's what makes him say the unthinkable. You know, maybe it'd be better if you weren't born. The final insult is you have no control over a proper burial. A man that I knew had six children and lots of grandchildren. The wife he married, his second wife, had a couple kids, but was not the mother to his six children. 
and always preferred her own kids and always had a bitter rivalry with the kids and were jealous anytime those six kids or the grandkids were around her husband. And of course, as it usually goes, the husband goes first and the husband died. She, not telling anybody, his six kids and grandkids just had him cremated and disallowed any memorial service or funeral. He's saying, on top of a life misery with no God and corruption and injustice and craziness, I'd just rather not be here than to have gone through that and then the final slap on your way out. <laughs> That's what he says. It gets better. It really does. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Two last ideas, and then we're done. So seven through nine. So now, he, now he's summing up. Now he's, he's closing the first section, one through six. So these are closing verses. All man's efforts are for his mouth, <laughs> yet his appetite's never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite this too is meaningless at chasing after the wind so uh, let's review the C word here is chasing the wind just uh, act of futility so uh, man is verse 7 he's just saying the problem uh, is this man is perpetually driven by this insatiable appetite for more and uh, it can never be satisfied. And, and without fixing that, life is just sort of ruined beyond uh, compare. Verse 8, he says, uh, whether he's wise or foolish, the same, weight, uh, the same fate awaits everybody. So he's saying whether they've come a long way in life and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made something of their lives and worked uh, his way to the top, uh, life is hard and then you die. It's meaningless. So he's summing it up just saying, without an eternal perspective, life really doesn't make sense. Uh, verse 9 offers advice. He quotes, and it's hard to understand in English. There, verse 9, here's what it means. Better is what you presently have and see than what one only desires but does not have. All right? So in other words, a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. That means better to be content with what you have than risk losing everything by seeking more. So just a little friendly advice. He's not totally, uh, he's not totally retrobate. You will see him in heaven. Jesus speaks nicely of Solomon. The New Testament mentions him a lot. He's there. He finished poorly. He shipwrecked his faith, but he survived the shipwreck. I don't recommend that to you. <laughs> you know, there are people there that are encouraged by that. Well, maybe I should shipwreck too. No. That's a sign that you might not even be saved to think a thought like that. All right, let's finish up 10 through 12. This is it right here. Whatever exists has already been named. So he's winding down the six chapters now. And what man 
is, has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. <laughs> the more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life? During the few and meaningless days, he passes through like a shadow. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? Now, everybody knows the answer to that, right? <laughs> yeah. So we close out with a complaint. Complaint, the final C, surprise. So we've reached the end of chapters one through six, which really was the search for meaning. It's over. Now chapters uh, seven through 12 are gonna have some advice and commentary on the future, all right? And it, as I promised, somewhat more upbeat. All right, so now he closes out complaining, which should be no surprise to anybody here. Uh, his first complaint, verse 10, there's nothing new in civilization. So he's already said this before. Uh, the firstborn of our parents was a murderer, and today people are, are murdering as well, and for all the, the wrong, stupid, frivolous reasons. So he's saying corruption, government, it's all the same. There's nothing new. False religion, um, the human condition, that's what he's saying. He's saying there's nothing new. Kingdoms rise and fall, injustices, strivings, frustration. There's no end in sight. Verse 10b, and here's something you can't catch without the Hebrew. He's saying, and if you don't like it, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? There's a sovereign God above all of this chaos, and you're stuck on it. You're stuck on, on the planet. What are you going to contend with him? You're going to lose. So he's saying, well, you're kind of stuck in this world, in this destiny. Here you are. How'd you get here? Somebody said, I didn't ask to be born. But Jesus asked you to be born again. Oh, that's a fantastic invitation. Amen. So he says, listen, he seems to be in charge of this well-ordered mess of a planet, and so, uh, you know, no, you have, there's no recourse, right? We're stuck. And then he says, I love this in 10b, go ahead and argue with lots of words, debate, analyze, try to fix this. Try to philosophize your way out of this nightmare called planet Earth with no God and no redemption and no savior and no hope. Use a lot of words, and after your fine, eloquent speech, you know what? Guess what? Nothing is fixed, and death is still stalking. That's what he's saying. The words aren't going to fix it. So everybody's going to come out with uh, all their new books, and this is the way to be happy, and this is the 12 steps to contentment and all of this. And he says, and guess what? The government's still corrupt. The heart is insanely lusting after things that don't satisfy. Injustice and crime is rampant, and death is unabated, and everybody keeps writing books <laughs> and giving speeches. And he says, it's not going to fix a thing. He says, who's got the answer? See, that's how he ends the section. Who, who knows what happens after we die? Who knows? Well, let me tell you who knows. The New Testament knows. Jesus knows. Let me tell you a few things that are happening that are going to happen in the future, Solomon, just so you know. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, 
we will be changed. A mystery. We will not all die. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. But we shall be changed. Changed. He's saying, when the coming of the Lord happens, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, changed in a twinkling of an eye. And then the day of the Lord, terrible for the world. Seven last years. Jesus said, if those days weren't cut short, nobody would even survive. Distress and tribulation, unequaled from the dawn of time. It's coming. But not before the church is rescued because we are not appointed to wrath. Jesus said to the church, I will spare you from the hour of tribulation that will come upon the entire earth. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. But wait, there's more. He appears and we appear with him. And he binds the devil and he renews the earth so that it will look like the garden of Eden again. And we will reign and rule with him. And God will be among us. And he'll wipe away our tears. There'll be no more death or crying or mourning or pain. And the old order of life will have been disappeared, put away. There'll be a thousand year reign. We'll enjoy the presence and love of God. We'll have new bodies like his glorious body. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Isaiah chapter 2, and there'll be no more war. Nobody's telling anybody, hey, you got to know the Lord. Because Jesus says, everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. And so it's a place where only goodness dwells. There's new heavens coming, a new earth. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Yeah, who can tell us what's to come? A lot of good things. But, you know, this is the deal for me. Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine it. Just such a beauty. You know what I like to do? Just in wrapping up. I like to think of the most royal, magnificent wedding you've ever seen on earth, right? Or the most beautiful place, like the seven wonders of the world, right? And then that's in this fallen world. That's what man's money can buy, that wedding, right? That's the best fallen, sinful men can do. What could God be doing? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Poor John, he couldn't even use words. He's saying, oh, shiny, bright, like a diamond. Oh, everything's shiny, bright, like a diamond. It's like, give us more information. Shiny, bright, just like colorful, like a rainbow. What, what's he supposed to say? What's he supposed to say? Solomon, yes, we have somebody to tell us what's coming. And it's something, it can be beautiful. But if you're here tonight and you've got distance between you and God or you don't know the Lord, oh man. Better listen up because we're all going to (laughs) die. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and the hope and a future (laughs) 
plans not to harm us. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for our salvation. And the more we study Ecclesiastes, the more grateful we are for a Savior, the more we love the truth, and the more we are inspired never to walk away from the hope that we have in you. Bless us now, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.